and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 288 and my conversation with Northeastern State University in Oklahoma, professor of music education and percussion, James Lindroth. This past weekend was quite active for me on a number of fronts. Our formerly called Missouri Day of Percussion was rebranded as our Percussion Arts Festival with a lot of great colleagues presenting and performing. This included previous podcast guests Alexandros Fragiscatos, who was leading the College Mass Steel Band, Julia Gaines, leading Mizzou Steel Band, Bill Schaltis, giving a timpani clinic, Josh Jones, giving an orchestral percussion clinic, Troy Hall, who is playing drum set for the Mass Steel Band, and a number of other previous guests in attendance, including Scott Cameron and Jeff Hewitt. I was fortunate not only to play in the steel band, but also to judge the Marimba A-Level Room, which featured a lot of great performances of some high-level solo marimba literature that I was definitely not playing at that age. I did some mini master classes with each student. That was a lot of fun. And then I ran into someone attending the festival who introduced himself and told me that he loved the podcast. And that seriously made my day. This past weekend was also the final concert for the Marshall Philharmonic Orchestra, a group that I've been playing with for the last 15 years. The concert was a lot of fun and went well, but it was also bittersweet. As one of our longtime charter members of the group and someone I've gotten to know over the years, Buddy Hannaford, died last week. Buddy was one of the original members of the Marshall Philharmonic, along with being really heavily involved in the Missouri Music Educators Association and the Missouri Bandmasters Association. Buddy was the band director at Trenton High School in Missouri for nearly 30 years, and we performed the concert in his honor. He was a super nice guy who was helpful and supportive of my own career, helping connect me with area band directors when I first arrived in Missouri. I greatly appreciate his time over the years, and he will be very much missed. All right, let's get to James Lindroth. James and I met in person at this year's PASIC, but we knew of each other through our mutual time together on the PAS Health and Wellness Committee. He's been actively involved in music for many decades, with seeds in the Boston area, Florida, and now in Oklahoma. He leads the percussion and music education areas at Northeastern State and has a strong focus on gigging and performing, particularly in the Boston area. Additionally, he is also a fellow podcaster. James and his son have a weekly podcast called the Lindroth Hockey Podcast, where they talk to and about hockey in professional and semi-professional settings, along with weekly interviews with former and current hockey players and coaches. Available wherever you get your podcasts. We get to all of those topics, along with some talk about arranging music, James Bond, and John Williams, so let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on April 5th, 2022, and it begins right now. James, tell me about what your uh, your percussion activities are, as well as your kind of your general teaching activities, as they are at this point for you. I moved to Oklahoma about 
10 years ago. And I did a lot of uh, playing where I came from, Florida. Um, and I was a band director, orchestra director, and then, of course, went on to get my PhD and worked a little bit at University of South Florida as well. So I was playing quite a bit. I was doing a lot of uh, mega church gigs, uh, you know, and that they paid really well. Uh, I did a little bit of symphony work here and there with the Florida Orchestra, uh, played also with the Florida Wind Band, and used to play quite a few of uh you know, do a seven week long stint with some of the musicals that were in town. And since coming to Oklahoma, I still uh, I'm sure we'll hit it in my in my story somewhere. Um, I still play with a uh, rock band that that we had formed in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. That really is uh, still popular in Boston, in the North Shore area of Boston. So I go back there to do some recording and also some gigging there. So. At my university, I run the percussion studio, also the music ed department here. So on the percussion side, I teach applied lessons. We only have undergraduate percussion students here. Uh, I teach applied lessons, percussion methods, and percussion ensemble. With your job, was that a was the position a combo of the two, or did you pick something up after you were brought in? Yeah, I picked something up. So when I came here, I was the music ed guy. About two or three years in, they had had an adjunct uh, teach percussion here. And they just, uh, with me having a master's in percussion, they just said, hey, do you feel comfortable enough taking over the studio? And I was like, absolutely. So uh, it was sort of a pick me up uh, for me as well. And when I was in Florida, I also had a private studio of up to 20 students. Um, but you know, that was mainly sixth grade through high school. So I, I jumped at the opportunity to continue to teach at the university level. When you did take it over, uh, the percussion side, what was the kind of the that obviously you said there was an adjunct, but what was kind of the, the status of the studio and what kinds of things did you see given the opportunity you wanted to kind of showcase? Yeah, the studio was a little bit in in uh, as far as instrumentation. It, it was it was severely lacking, you know. And I think that happens quite a bit when you know you have an adjunct, and I, and I can't remember. I think the adjunct came in once a week, um, but you know, obviously not being able to uh, get the equipment, get the right equipment, um, and just having a good percussion inventory was uh, something I was surprised at. So uh, it took me about two or three years after taking it over. And luckily, I had a good uh, administration that uh, said, what do you need? And over a period of three years, they gave me what they could. Nice. So what has that meant in terms of where these instruments get stored? Well, it's yeah, it's real strange. So we have a small band room. And when I say a band room, it's, it's more like a chamber recital room. And most of the time, the wind ensemble will try to rehearse on on stage in the CPA just because this room is, like I said, a small chamber room. Well, this is where all the percussion equipment is is housed. We need to grow. And luckily for us, uh, so we've heard uh, one of our buildings has been renovated on campus and we share our building with art and humanities and they're moving out. So we're able to take over their space hopefully next year and I'll be able to actually, uh, you know, have quite a bit of that room. And so with a band director, the band director is is tight with equipment space as well. So it's pretty tight right now. 
if this is this happens, you know, with the taking over the other building, have you are, are you in, in talks about ways that 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 space can actually be made useful for you right off the bat? We're in talks and, and it's going well. You know, that's going to be the percussion department is going to declare a, quite a bit of space over there. And me being a, a full professor now, I, it gives me a little bit of weight, you know what I mean, in, in negotiations here. So I'm hoping to create a, a, a big studio over there, big space, and allow me to not only teach applied lessons, but also have a, a room just dedicated for percussion ensemble, percussion methods class. So we'll see how that goes. I'll have to update you in about a uh, six months from now. <laughs> awesome. You know, in terms of your playing, it sounds like a lot of the playing that you're you're continually doing is not actually in town. Are there opportunities for stuff to do things in town? I'm located at a regional university. My university is uh, Northeastern State University in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, and it's about an hour east of Tulsa. So while the town itself is mainly um, just a college town and not much going on um, outside of the town, there are opportunities in Tulsa to play. I remarried about seven years ago. And when I did that, um, I sort of stepped away from trying to pick up you know, a lot of gigs. Now I can kind of pick and choose. So at, at 53, I'm more of a, a musical performing snob where I'm not taking, you know, I'm not taking every gig, uh, you know, I can pick and choose. So um, I, I'm blessed in that regard. And like I said, at my university, since um, I have a PhD in music education, the primary focus for me here is not so much going out and playing, even though, um, as we talked about, I do do that. It's mostly the publication on the music ed side. So, um, you know, I've, I'm kind of stuck in between both of those worlds. You know what I mean? On the music ed side, what's the what are the teaching responsibilities? Is it like are you the like the instrumental music ed or are you like all everything all across the board? We have a very solid and well-known education department, not just in music, but overall um, in the state. And our music department here is predominantly about 90, 95% music ed students. So we're definitely a music ed school. So I teach um, elementary and secondary music methods. And we do have, um, you know, all the conducting, advanced conducting. I don't teach that. And of course, all of the um, instrumental method courses, I just teach percussion. So for the music ed side, it's the elementary, secondary music methods. And of course, I'm also the university coordinator for their internships. So I'm the faculty that will go out and observe them in the field. So it takes quite a bit of quite a, quite a bit of time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what when you're you're telling me kind of the percentages, what are the what are the numbers both of students, student majors and faculty as well? I believe we have nine full-time faculty members right now and a, and a slew of adjuncts. Um, students, we usually average between 50 to 70 majors. Um, we have quite a few minors. Um, it's kind of interesting, you know, us being, there's 9,000 students on our campus. So not a small school, but not a big school. And we are regional. So we tend to pull from um, an 80 mile radius of where we're at just northeast of uh, Tulsa. So 
we tend to get quite a few students that don't want to be music majors, but they want to continue to play in the ensembles and be part of uh, have music. So we have a quite a few of music minors, which is great because they're able to take up to two years of lessons. And of course, they can be in any ensemble. So that really helps me out, particularly with percussion ensemble as well. I usually have about 12 to 15 in percussion ensemble every year. So it's good for me. How does how does your your actual schedule work then with these kind of set classes and then putting the the ensembles and the lessons on it? Yeah, it it, it can become a little bit crazy if if the studio gets too large. So it's basically I have my core classes that I teach. Um, I have my release time to go out in the field to see the interns. And then I have to schedule the lessons basically around my schedule and the students' schedule, which all the faculty do. Um, It just becomes a little tricky because usually one day a week, I'm not on campus because I'm out in the field seeing interns. So it's just a game of, uh, you know, lining up schedules. And our percussion ensemble, unfortunately, just because of we don't have hundreds of students in our department, they tend to be pulled in, you know, marching band, wind ensemble, chamber groups, jazz band, you know, they play in everything. So percussion ensemble, there's no room in the schedule for the fall. So we have our percussion ensemble in the spring. And uh, we'd all like to change that, the percussionists and I, but it just can't work with the demands that they have. Yeah, that's, that's not a, that's a pretty typical, particularly at a small school, whereas there's more than just uh, where there are multiple like band ensembles or, or, you know, particularly with the marching band schedule, that's obviously. Yeah. Challenge. Do, are you involved in the marching band at all? No, I'm not involved in the marching band. Um, but you know, I keep a, a close full eye because typically the incoming freshmen, they'll, uh, you know, they'll do marching band, the percussionists, and, uh, I want to keep them on the radar because I want them to get involved in percussion ensemble in the spring. And, for many of them, uh, the way my university is set up is they can't take lessons, uh, meaning I won't get load credit for lessons unless they're a major or minor. So, you know, you try to convince them, hey, what's your major? And music might be a minor. You're already halfway done. You've done, you know, three semesters of band. That's like half of their music minor. So um, it ends up working out. Well, then you have to try to convince them to do theory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and luckily, they well, no, I take it back. Yeah, they got to do music theory one and two, but oral theory one. Mm. And that and that's really the, the, the tough classes for them. So yeah. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been teaching at school? Ten years. So you said you're did you come in at uh, at an upper level or did you just you you've already made the. The, the yeah, so so I was a high school band orchestra teacher for you know 16 years or so, and uh, decided I wanted to teach higher ed. So you got to get that doctorate. So I went ahead and and wanted to do the music ed. I went the the research route just uh, because I, I think there were better job opportunities, and it's just something I wanted to do. And I was lucky at USF. I, I probably shouldn't talk too much about it because they kind of made me a, a, a sweet deal. I had scholarship, sort of a graduate assistantship, but more of a scholarship. And I was also hired at, at like a halftime faculty member as, as assistant director of bands. Mm. 
and uh, taught classes. So I was able to do my PhD in three years and basically didn't have to pay for it, which was great, and made that sort of half, you know, faculty. So I, I sort of negotiated those years of teaching there, those three years in when I came here at NSU, and uh, sort of fast-tracked into tenure and then uh, moved into full. I think I went to full professor about a year ago, I think it was. So um, I'm real blessed. I know it was sort of fast-tracked, but I'll take it. Well, no, that's great. If you can, that negotiating part is, I think, it's a challenge to to do since that's not tends tends not to be the skill set yeah. for yeah. for musicians in that sense. Did, was that? I'm just curious when you, when you negotiated that was that something you were like? I should just maybe I'll just ask. Like I mean, do you remember like what what you were thinking when you when you did ask that? Well, yeah, I, you know, one of the graduate courses I had to take was. Uh, um, you know, teaching in higher ed. And part of that was actual negotiating tech, you know, tactics and techniques. So it was all about, hey, if you can get this, you can get that. And, you know, typically, I think on the books, if it's the position at USF certainly wasn't tenure track, it wasn't full time, but it was something that I was, you know, typically they wouldn't accept that. But uh, I was just able to sort of negotiate, you know, and, you know, we've all been there. If you negotiate, if you can't get the salary, then you try something else. Or if you don't get the moving expenses, you try to get something else. So, you know, they've been very good to me here at NSU as far as moving me up the track. So I, I can't complain. They've been wonderful. No, that that's great. And that's smart to think about. Um, that cra- cla- First of all, that class sounds awesome. But also that to I, I, at some point early on for me, I know someone was said, it's like really, it's it, frequently that for, when you are actually negotiating, if you've been offered a position, like that's actually your window to try to ask for stuff. Yes, you know, right then, actually before you started, and not not while you're there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, e- exactly, and and that class did help. But um, I remember the professor. I think that taught the class. He was a visiting professor from um, or retired, and he was just. Uh, visiting our university for a year and he was uh the head of music ed at one time at penn state so it's a huge school and you know some of the things he was trying to negotiate uh or tell us to negotiate simply wasn't on the books for a smaller school like mine you know like oh you know professional development ask for you know twenty thousand dollars of travel money for the first three years and it's like yeah i got nothing (laughs) yeah right (laughs) i tried but i got i didn't get anything yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Travel money. <laughs> yeah, what is that? Professional development money. What is that? <laughs> oh, sad but true. As we were talking earlier, the before we started, I, you know, one of the ways that that I we we know each other is through the health and wellness committee for PAS, and that you presented this really great presentation about I want to say like musculoskeletal health. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, musculoskeletal disorders. So um, when I joined the Health and Wellness Committee in PAS, maybe about three years ago, maybe, maybe it was four, three years ago, we'll say, um, I I really wanted to kind of jump into that realm. My hearing's pretty much blown, so I don't do anything in the way of like hearing protection, just because I'd be the biggest hypocrite. My my hearing is really bad at 53. Um, 
but I could help in other ways. And when I mentioned that I got remarried here in Oklahoma seven years ago, I, I married a physician. She's a family doctor. And it's great for me because I've had, you know, in that particular case at PASIC for the presentation, it was, I've had students that had all sorts of problems with tendinitis, tennis elbow, things like that, that I presented in, at that session and was able to ask my wife, you know, hey, what should we do not do? And then she was able to kind of send me to the right direction to say, here, do this. And I, I don't think I would have presented something on medical the way that I did at PASIC if I didn't have my physician wife go over it to say, uh, don't say that, don't do that. So for me, it, that was kind of how that presentation came to be. And she gave me the, she didn't give me the answers, but she gave me the confidence to, uh, to do that. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, it was, and it was my first time presenting at PASIC and it was just a great experience. Wonderful. Yeah. What was your primary interest in just being on the health and wellness and why, why was that a major factor for you to even, you know, join that committee? Like I said, I've had students at a, here at the university early on that had a lot of different problems with, with um, all sorts of musculoskeletal issues and I didn't have the answers for them. And of course, not that I, I have my, my wife diagnose them, but I'd go to her and, and she would mention some, you know, different therapies that could be done and different little machines that could be bought and, you know, trying to help out my students without being their doctor, say. So I was like, I really need to learn more about this. And that's when my wife said, here, here's all my medical books knock yourself out. And then, you know, when I didn't understand or thought I understood something, I'd present it to her and she would correct me. And that's kind of how I, I just said, you know what, I might be able to be a good source for a PAS to help with some of these, uh, you know, health and wellness. I mean, there's a lot on there that, you know, we'll talk about mental health and everything. And that's, that's certainly great. And, and I love it. I try to do a little bit more on the medical side, just because, like I said, I have the resources that I can do that. For example, what was a, or who was a source or what was a source that you went, that was your, your wife suggested, check this out. And you found that that was, that was not related to percussion, but something that like helped you bridge some of the, the challenges you just were facing. For the musculoskeletal stuff, she gave me a, a wonderful sports medicine book you know, physicians will have to, just like us, we'll have to do our professional development. So they have to go and have professional development. And I guess, a long, I mean, she's been practicing for almost 30 years. So she had this wonderful presentation on musculoskeletal disorders, and she had this great music, uh, sorry, uh, music sports medicine book, and it covered all of the musculoskeletal disorders, therapies uh, that would go along with it. And again, she was able to bridge the gap with me to try to say, you can't be somebody's doctor. So be careful, um, you know, when you do this clinic that you don't offer advice that you might read in the book, they need to go see their doctor. However, you can let them know, oh, you don't, you know, you can't, you have numbness in your index finger that could be this. Oh, you've got, you know, uh, problems and pain here and there. It could be this. And uh, that's what I hope to bring to that session. Yeah. My, my, my memory of it, aside from your presentation, was the line of people 
It's like your wife is saying, telling you, like, yeah. don't be that. And then all of a sudden there's a lot of people like my, you know, my wrist does this. And that's and, and that's and that's exactly what they did, didn't they? <laughs> and, and I kind of felt like a medical doctor. But, yeah, I had my wife in the back of my mind go, Jimmy, you know, don't give out medical advice. You're, you're a doctor, but you're not a medical doctor. Right. <laughs> and I'd have to and I'd have to tell them because, you know, I mean, maybe I did a a good enough job. They thought I was a, a medical doctor, even though I said I wasn't. But uh, yeah, I was very careful. And, but it also goes to show you that there is a need in our percussion world that a lot of these people suffer from these things and they just don't know what it is. I didn't. So that's why I had to kind of dig into the books, do research, ask questions and figure out what's what. And uh, yeah, you know, that that basic, um, my son is also a percussionist. Um, I mean, he, he's he still plays professionally, but um, more of a part time gig. And he's 26. Well, he came to the PASIC with me. You know, he, we try to go to PASIC together, which is a great father and son thing to do, by the way. But uh, we didn't know who was going to show up at this thing. You know, musculoskeletal disorders. You know, who's going to go to that? And uh, we placed bets. I placed like 10 people would go and he placed like 100 people would go. And I, I think it was. Uh, I don't know, about 70 or 80 ended up going. So we were pleasantly surprised. And my son did say, hey, because a lot of people, they're hurting. This is a good thing. You should try to do more of this. So I, I was I was pleased. It's a constant, obviously. I mean, uh, you know, and it, it comes in so many different sources um, because it, it, you know, it's not just a lot of times it's like there's like the hands health. And then there's the fingers health and then there's the wrist health and then there's the elbow. Like, it's like, there's, there's so many different, uh, or it's the, the posture, you know, like that, that ends up being things that are factors. Yep. I mean, and you know, if you're playing a lot of drum set, like how bad drum stools had, <laughs> I mean, they're better now, but they were terrible <laughs> for so long. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and, much of my students that I've noticed that have had trouble with hands, wrists, arms, it's mainly, it's uh, just bad habits. It's bad technique. And, you know, sometimes, as you know, uh, you know, sometimes we can fix that technique. Sometimes it's such a bad habit. You can't fix it. And if, you know, if you're hurting, you're doing something wrong, you know, you're doing something wrong. Well, and you know, you don't always know, when the stress is happening, I, and I say that because I figured out at some point when I was starting to have issues with my hands that I was really grabbing the steering wheel really tightly. And I had no idea that I was doing that. And I realized, I was like, oh, if I just like, I can be way more comfortable here. And that was actually a lot of the source, it turned out, for some of my my own hand issues, which yeah. is not a, a yeah. lessons thing. It's a lifestyle thing. <laughs> yeah, no, abs Absolutely. And, um, you know, I try to just help my students now with with better technique, uh, just because it'll save them a little bit of hurt down the road. Uh, sometimes I'm successful and other times um, I'm not. But uh, pretty much my students are are hanging in there as far as technique and not hurting themselves. And and of course, I remember my undergrad, even even my master's, it's, you know, I never hurt. I never, I mean, I guess I had good technique or maybe my body was made a little differently, but I didn't have any trouble. 
it was only until the arthritis, you know, for the middle age guy here, the arthritis starting to come in and it's not bad, but I did notice, yeah, that, you know, the joints start to wear down and, uh, you know, sometimes the nerves will, will get pinched every now and again, things like that. But I didn't have any trouble when I was a younger guy. I don't know if you did at all, but I, I did, but a lot of students do. Yeah. No, not much. Again, yeah. same thing. The getting old part. All right. Well, let's back up. So, James, where did you grow up? So I grew up about 30 miles northeast of Boston. So I do a good job trying to hide the Boston accent, but it will come out every once in a while. Um, so I grew up in a, in a town, if you know, the infamous uh, Salem witch trials. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I grew up in the town right next to that. It's beautiful, right on the water. It's called Beverly. And I grew up in that town and went through the music program. And it was a great music program. And it was great in the fact that our high school, we had two directors. One was more on the older side. The young was a younger guy in his early 30s at the time. And they were both gigging musicians. So it was, you know, we actually had a class in high school called General Business, you know, General Business Band, being a cover band, reading down, you know, big band charts. So that kind of helped me to go, yeah, I, I, I love music. I was able to get out even in high school and start playing some gigs early on. I had a wonderful percussion uh, instructor who was a full-time performer. Um, And um, he's still gigging. I think I contacted him a few years ago. He's maybe approaching 70 and he's still gigging full-time, just teaches privately uh, part-time. But anyway, I came from a wonderful, wonderful uh, music program that just allowed us students to play and play a lot of things that I think other high schools don't have the opportunity to. You know, some schools will get so jazz directed or there'll be marching band directed. And, you know, students kind of have some of the students I get, you know, coming from um, Oklahoma, the Tulsa area. I mean, they have some of the best competing marching band drum lines in the country, you know, Broken Arrow, Union, Owasso. I mean, these are huge programs and they are diverse, uh, but some of the students that I get are very narrow. You know, they're like a marching snare drum guy, right? you know, four mallet marimba purse, you know, they tend to be locked into these positions. I wasn't that way in high school. I was just had to kind of do it all. And that helped me a lot. Did you have family members in the arts? No. Not at all. So I came from, I'm the youngest of a family of six, and I was the first one to go to college. Mm. And uh, my my parents, my mom was musical as far as, you know, she knew any song from 1930 to 1960. Uh, But uh, nobody, you know, formally studied music. And uh, it was just, it was one of those things I'm I don't know about you, but it was, I grabbed pots and pans as a kid. So playing drums percussion was something I just grabbed. If that was my identity, it was who it's who I was going to be. It's who I am. So uh, I gravitated to drums percussion probably in like second grade. When, when did you get uh, a set? Actually, my, my first set is still, it's in my office. It's now beat up. I got my set in, I think, 1980, 81. Um, I think I was in the sixth grade and my dad is, was a kind of a factory. um, He he was a pattern maker, not pattern maker, like making 
clothes and dress, but a pattern maker, like he'll take a blueprint of something that, that has a patent on it and it, it needs to go to a foundry and he'll make the actual mold for the foundry. He's also an artist and I mean a really good artist. So he didn't have the money for a drum set. So he sold three paintings for like, I think $700. So I got my first Pearl export with some camber two ride and hi-hat symbols in like 1981. Nice. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. You know, when you start out playing drum set, what was the, what was your favorite stuff to play to? Really anything and everything. So I had a great private lesson teacher who, like I said, had gigs playing in, in big bands, Dixieland bands, rock, you know, uh, top 40 bands. I mean, he did it all every night. So he was sort of an inspiration to me of that's what a, a, a drummer does is you can play it all. And of course he had a, um, a bachelor's, you know, in performance. So he was a uh, highly qualified to play, you know, anything. You could play timpani, you could play mallets, you could play drum set, you know, whatever it was needed. And that kind of inspired me just to want to kind of play and do everything. It's interesting because that area, I grew up in on Long Island, New York. Uh, okay. So we're natural enemies, obviously. And yeah, yeah. But what's, I mean, that what's interesting is that like that area is a very, it's a very compact and, but very specific. There's like very Boston specific things about like about music, about the industry that are even different than like, if you went to New York would have the same kind of like it's So it's a, as you've kind of gone to other parts of the country, you, did you just kind of notice like, wow, this is like, I kind of, this was kind of an amazing place to, to actually grow up in the music side. Yeah. You know, until you leave it, you don't really realize that, but uh, yeah, you know, Boston has, and when I say Boston um, at this time, at least in high school and that teacher I was talking about, this isn't so much inside of Boston. So this isn't the real, you know, heavy duty gigs. These are just things that are around that hometown and that North shore area. So there was at that time in the eighties, plenty of playing opportunities for guys that could get the job done. Um, my, my first experience of sort of the Boston music scene world is my, I went in my junior year to my band director and said, Hey, I want to do music. Particularly, I want to be a music teacher. And, um, you know, I was kind of big fish in little pond at my school. Right. I, again, a wonderful school, but you know, you need to go out and figure out, you know, who's, who do you got to compete against and what is it going to take to go to music school? So long story short, I uh, go to the New England Conservatory of Music. They have their prep division and uh, I signed up for lessons. I made their uh, percussion ensemble and they housed the, I still think they're there, the Massachusetts Youth Wind Ensemble, which is kind of like an all state kind of rich kid group. Is the only way to is the only way is very affluent people of Belmont, Boston suburbs, you know, things like that. And I made it. So I was traveling in my senior year of high school. I'd take the train and then the subway into Boston and to New England Conservatory of Music three days a week after school. Wow. And what I found out was, yeah, I didn't really know how to play timpani that well. And yeah, my mallet chops. There were no four mallet chops and my mallet chops were really bad. And, you know, that was my first real classical 
exposure to serious lit beyond, you know, high school, if that makes sense. Yeah. Did so you, I was you, like, okay, now I got to get ready for the next year to go to go to college and do it for real. And that really helped me out. Maybe hard to think about this, but did, could you tell that the, what, like the, the, the chops you had developed from your drum set playing and your gig playing, did they, did they work towards you or your classical playing or did you have to learn like a completely different system to even continue on there? No, because like I said, my private lesson teacher, um, I mean, I was a really good reader. So playing snare drum, um, it was just, you know, we didn't have private lessons on timpani and we really didn't play much in the way of mallets. I, you know, my band director was a keyboard player. So, you know, kind of showed us mallets, but we didn't have that private lesson teacher that would do the classical, but he would cover all the snare literature, even some multi-percussion stuff, just because he had gone through it in his undergrad and, you know, he knew that we needed that. So I was a little behind the eight ball as far as the classical side, as far as the mallet chops and proper timpani chops, really. But that was for me going, okay, now I need to learn this stuff before I go. And my, my background's kind of strange. So I didn't go to a classical school at first. I went to Berkeley School of Music in Boston. I did that for a semester. And I realized, at least at that time, we're talking like 1987. Drummers are a dime a dozen. And there's like two or three ensembles. And remember, these are memories of a, what, of an 18-year-old kid. All right. So this may not be accurate, but it's my recollection. There's no way you were going to play. You know, there's a hundred drummers and there's, you know, a few slots for these ensembles and they're all for upperclassmen. So um, I enjoyed my semester, but then I said, yeah, I think I'm going to go somewhere else. And then I went to a very good state school, which is now called UMass Lowell. It was just University of Lowell, but it's University of Massachusetts at Lowell. And there I was blessed to study with Neil Grover, you know, the founder of Grover Pro Percussion. And I got to study with Fred Buddha, who passed a few years ago. But these guys that played full time in the Boston Pops and the Boston Symphony and the Boston Ballet. So now you get to that that Boston music scene. These guys own the Boston music scene. You know, and it was those guys. It was, uh, I think, uh, Dean Anderson at Berkeley. And uh, of course, everybody at the New England Conservatory, which was actually Vic, Vic Firth and uh, Oh, geez. Uh, huh? Is that where Nancy Zeltman is or was? I It could be now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, it it was uh, and, and Fred Buddha, you know, actually taught at New York Conservatory. So I was blessed because my percussion teachers at UMass Lowell were full time performers and part-time teachers where usually it's the other way for like my students. It's, you know, I'm a full-time professor, part-time player. And it was the opposite. So the, the approach to how they taught the lessons was completely different. It was about how to survive in the music world rather than just meeting certain standards to graduate, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, can you explain how, what, of like a way that it was different in the lesson itself. Yeah. So the lessons now, 
if you haven't had Neil Grover on, you, he, I know you'd come on your podcast. If you had him on, you should. You you should. And and I don't want to speak for him because now I'm like trying to do his biography. And this is like almost 30 years ago. Right. Um, but uh, he was a student of uh, of Vicks as well. And um, I think he got his master's at New England Conservatory, but I, I, I don't know. Anyway, he was a student of Vic. And of course, he's plays full time. And he would always relate things of how you perform things with the Boston Pops or the Boston Symphony. And it was all musical things. It was, it was, it was, this is how you do it. And Fred being the drum set player, I think for like 36 years for the Boston Pops, it was all about don't have a, an outstanding night because you'll have a bad night, just have a good night every night. So it was all about, you have to be a professional. Here's how you're going to need to do it. As far as your practice routine, here's what's expected every lesson and if not, I don't need to do this because I'm not a full-time teacher. And at, at my school, UMass Lowell at the time, Neil was a top teacher with Fred. Ted, uh, Fred mostly did the drum set stuff, but he did do classical percussion. But he was more of the jazz drum set guy. And then any student that they didn't want or they felt weren't practicing enough, we had a third guy that came in. And now, uh, and that third person is Jeff Fisher, who's a wonderful percussionist, plays in the Boston Ballet, among others right now. And I think he's is still the percussion director at UMass Lowell. Anyway, it was always that if you waste my time, you go to you, you go to somebody else. Yeah. And I got that lecture a few times. You're wasting you know, my time, James. <laughs> yeah, it's like if you, sh it was literally like, look, you know, I don't need to do this. And if you're not going to be serious about this, and if you come unprepared one more time, I'm dropping you as a student. And it was like, okay. And I never came unprepared, you know? Yeah. Um, but it was, it was, it was fascinating for me to, you know, to study under those guys because it was always like, they would talk about what they were playing in the symphony, you know, the Boston symphony, Boston pops. And at that time, remember John Williams was the director of the Boston pops. So, you know, they got to play on a lot of soundtracks for his movies and they would bring that in. And it was just a, a wonderful experience to study with guys that were actively doing it every single day. Yeah. I, I, I bet. And I, I was thinking, I love the, I don't need you to be outstanding. Your job is not to be the star or not to be outstanding. It's to be good. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I, I, I remember studying, uh, what is it? The Magadini, uh, uh, either volume one or volume two of the Polyrhythms book. Uh -huh. And I was going through that with Fred. And, and I remember we were doing like uh, all these different things about five against four. Yeah. And and I don't know why he said this, because I, I don't know anything five against four in this musical. But I remember him saying one time and Fred was like a product of the big band and sort of the 60s jazz. So he would uh, uh, God rest his soul. He, he'd, he'd talk very hip and he'd be like almost the Buddy Rich type that would have like the turtlenecks with the medallion. You know what uh, I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, he you know, he'd kind of talk and he'd say, uh Come on, baby. You know, play me, play me the five against four. If you play me the five against four right now, you'll come and you'll come and play with me uh, at Phantom next week. Well, what he's talking about is Phantom of the Opera was in for like, you know, their whatever, two, three week engagement. And he's one of the pickup guys. 
And he was trying to say, yeah, if you nail this and you show me that you can do this consistently, uh, come and, you know, you play with me on Phantom of the Opera at the Wang Center, you know? And of course, I could not play the five against four. <laughs> so he would, he would say to me, and he'd, and he'd say, and that's why you don't send a boy to do a man's job. Okay. And, you know, you got to give that the text, you know. I don't want any of the, the wonderful females to be like, oh, you just said man's job. I mean, but that's the way Fred was. And the context was you don't send a, you know, amateur to, to, to a professional gig. And that's when he said, don't have a great night. Just have a good night every night and you'll get the next gig. And that was the thing that was instilled all the time was it doesn't have to be perfect. You just have to be a top notch player, but you just have to play the job the way the conductor, the director wants. Yeah. Yeah, So it was a great experience for me. And I'll tell you one quick story if we got time. So being having John Williams um, being their boss, basically, I remember Fred came into a lesson and this might be, so I I did my undergrad at UMass Lowell and then um, I actually ended up doing my master's there. So I, I was able to study a little bit more with Fred um, as well. And during somewhere in that time, the early 90s, Fred came in. And at that time, you know, I was very much into marching percussion. And he was all upset because, you know, he was all drum set and motion and, you know, drum corps, you know, very don't move the arms, don't, you know, and it used to drive him nuts. But he said one time, he says, and he used to call it the rat tat tat crap. He'd go, Hey man, you, you know, you'd always say, you got to give up that rat-tat-tat crap, meaning the marching stuff. He's like, man, it's really, really not helpful to you at all. You're never going to gig, you know, except teaching, you know, what, who's going to hire you to play that? So he was always on me to like, you know, once you get this out of your system, so to speak. Well, all of a sudden he says, Hey, you still play that rat-tat-tat stuff, right? And I said, yeah. He says, all right. He says, and this is how he said it. And then you, and then, then I'll have to translate it. He said, well, Johnny Cash just gave us this, uh, this uh, this piece and it's all this rat tat tat stuff and I actually it's a it's this duet and I have to learn this duet and it's all the rat tat tat stuff so can you learn it and maybe a couple spots kind of help me and then we'll play it together because either he had to record it or he had to play it one or the other well it's not Johnny Cash the country singer it's Johnny Cash John Williams and he called him Johnny Cash because that's where the cash was. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, and, and anyway, so he brought in this, you know, handwritten stuff and it made no sense. So I learned it, you know, we practiced, we did it for about two weeks or something like that. And it was really hard, old school kind of rudimental stuff. Right. And of course, Fred can play anything, anything. So he did it. And the last time I said, I said, what is this? What is this for? And he says, I don't know. Johnny gave it to us and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, can you find out? Because at that point, it's like, I still worship John Williams. You know, a lot of people might say, well, you know, it's not legit composer. He's just a film score. But I always loved John Williams. And at that time, I was like, man, John Williams is the greatest thing. And I said, it'd be great. He says, all right, I'll get the rest of the score. And he brought it in one day. And I went, JFK? What the heck does JFK mean? Like John Fitzgerald Kennedy? What, What is this? So what we had practiced and learned was that snare drum duet at the beginning of the movie JFK, the Oliver Stone movie. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you can recall it, but go ahead and look it up. It's at the very, I think it's the beginning of the movie. 
And it has this huge rudimental snare drum duet that is just out of control. Okay. And that was the part. So I was kind of like, you know, hey, should I charge you for this, Fred? You know? And he was like, no, man, the other guy's getting paid. You know, it's good for you. It's part of your education. But anyway, so I got to uh, sort of play that snare drum duet before it was even a movie. So anyway, that's hopefully that's an entertaining story. No, that's that's great. I mean, well, it, at least I won't have to. The movie's like three and a half hours long. I I, I don't need to. I don't want to have to sit through the whole movie to find this. I'm glad you just said it it's right. To be I, I, th- I think if you YouTube it like JFK's snare drum duet, you'll find or dueling drums or something. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really great and it's hard, man. It's really hard. Anyway, that's nice. No, that's good. Well, what made you decide to stick around and get your master's there? So I really didn't. So this is where it kind of takes a left hand turn. So I graduated with my music education degree, and I can't remember. I'm that old. If I went right back to get my start my master's or not, what happened was. Being in Boston, right? I mean, there's not many colleges in the Boston area, right? Yeah, right. So, and there's not many guys retiring from the teaching profession in the public schools. And they're not creating new schools like they are, you know, I taught in Florida for a long time. And they're not building new schools. So you have a million resumes for every band director job or elementary music job. So I didn't get a job. And I was really frustrated and being the, I don't know, what are we, 22, you know, dumb 22-year-old, I decide I'm, I've wasted my time. I've wasted, you know, money, everything else. So I did something real dumb and I joined the Army. So I walked into the Army recruiter and I said, uh, you know, what's the toughest thing you got? What's something that would be a challenge? And they said, well, go in the infantry. So me being dumb, um, I joined the Army and joined the infantry. And luckily, I was able to, at that time, sign up for either a two-year, three-year, or four-year enlistment. And I think I did, might have did the two-year, maybe three-year. And off to Fort Benning, Georgia, I went to basic training and infantry school. And um, I I'd served in the Army and uh, did a lot of, you know, dirty, crazy things as far as infantry. You know, you get to go to jump school and air assault school and all those things. And I realized that that was basically a mistake. I missed the music. And then I thought, maybe I should be a performer. And music's really, I I was a good soldier and I did well, but it just was not, you know, what are you going to do after you're done with the army? If you're, what school can, you know, what vocation can you do? So when I got out of the army, I went right back and, and went in to get my master's. And the one thing that the army did do was I grew up real fast. So any growing up that I might have missed in my undergraduate, <laughs> I certainly got that in the Army. So I was then very laser focused on studying percussion and getting my my master's in, in performance. And that's kind of a sidestep you probably didn't know about. But, uh, yeah, that was kind of a crazy thing I did. And that you were there for the 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 term of your enlistment. You did all three years or however. Yeah, long. yeah, yeah. So and, where were uh, you? Where were you stationed? I was stationed um, in in Hawaii, also up in um, Fort Lewis, up in Washington. And of course, you know, if you're not there long, you know, they spend a lot of money on you to train, particularly if you're in like a combat arms thing. Yeah. 
you know, whether you're a tanker or um, artillery or infantry. So you spend a lot of time going to different schools. You know, you got most of your stuff is in in, uh, Fort Benning, at least it was. And then you go to jump school, which is in Fort Benning. But then you go to air assault school, which is uh, in uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where the 101st was. That's where air assault school was. So you're kind of always jumping around here, there and everywhere. And it really was kind of like a blur. And I got in the best shape of my life. And you can tell by looking at me, uh, I let that go. <laughs> and, and I'm not a big guy. You know, I'm 5'8". Um, but you don't need to be looking like a Rambo to serve in the infantry or, or in the army. And, and a lot of those guys, you know, that were you see in the movies that are all jacked up, they don't do well um, in those situations because they, they can't move quick. It's better to be a small guy. It really is. But anyway, I, I don't want to get on a tangent on that. But no, that's a, that's so I went back to music and um, um, got real serious about it and uh, was just love my master's in, in uh, percussion performance. And I was able to study with Fred for a year. And then uh, by this time, Neil had moved on. I think he was only at UMass Lowell for three years. And at that time, he started Grover Pro Percussion. So us students in undergrad, you know, he would pay us like two cents for every tambourine jingle we'd hammer in our practice room. We'd have our headphones and he gave us anvils and we're hammering jingles or we're soldering. Um, you're actually, well, I don't, I don't want to give away their trade secrets, but, you know, each of their snare strainers is actually tuned. Each string is tuned to a pitch and then you'd solder that. And I did that for a while too. And uh, so he kind of used us as a, uh, cheap labor, I guess, early on. And then when Grover Pro Percussion just took off, he just couldn't, you know, but he's still playing full-time too. Yeah. So um, anyway, Jeff Fisher that I mentioned before, he took over the studio and I was able to study, I think my last year with Jeff. And he was another um, um, New England Conserve grad going through Vic Firth. So like he was the one that helped me through Elliot Carter's Eight Pieces for Timpani. Mm. You know, and, you know, we did that for a whole semester, however long we did that. So I was real blessed uh, with the people I got to study with. But it did come with it did come with some drawbacks. One of the drawbacks would be um, I had to learn four mallets sort of take you learn the basics with them. But and remember, when I was late 80s, early 90s, it wasn't that much in the way of four mallet literature. Right. Um, as it is today. And it really wasn't that big of a, of a thing, at least in my school. We learned it, but, you know, I remember Neil, is either Neil or Fred saying, you know how many times I had to play four mallets with the symphony over the last 20 years? Zero. Right. So, he, you know, their whole thing was, it's, it's a cute thing for college. That was sort of the attitude that I, I got from them was, you know, it's a cute thing for college and recitals, but, you know, you know, they would say, what are you going to do? Be a solo, you know, traveling solo. Cause remember they're thinking full-time performer and not too many people could do that. Yes. So that was sort of a, a drawback. It was like, you're not really going to need it. If you're going to be a professional playing in symphonies, it was like, okay, not that we didn't cover it. We just, it's not to the degree that it is today. Yeah. 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 Well, and you're right. There was no, the lit wasn't the amount of lit, the, the level of lit wasn't, wasn't as strong. And also the instruments weren't as good either. No. Right. 
So if you had like a, if you had a four and a third, you were like, this is amazing. This is the greatest <laughs> marimba, you know? Yeah. You know, it's like playing Gordon Stout's like uh, two Mexican dancers or, you know, oh, something yeah. like, you or know what I mean? Japanese literature from the sixties. That was like, that was their <laughs> whole thing basically. Right. We didn't have the Trevinos of today and, and Mark Ford, you know, and, and a lot of others that have just created beautiful, beautiful, uh, literature for four mallets. And, uh, and, and I get quite a few students, like I said, from, um, um, from these bigger Tulsa schools. And I mean, these guys and gals can play. And, uh, you know, one of the things I had to do when I took over the percussion studio is believe it or not, they didn't have a five octave marimba. Mm -hmm. It's like, how can you be university and not have a five octave marimba? So that was the first thing that I purchased because, as you know, four and a third, you can't, what literature are you going to do today that's really at a university level? And having that equipment and, you know, me being able to, you had to learn that four mallet stuff eventually, which I did. I mean, in my master's, I went ahead and really studied four mallets, uh, not on my own, but like I said, it wasn't a priority for the, for the teachers at that point. But um, you know, now I'm attracting, I've attracted students that really are good four mallet players here at our university. And, and I mean, I, they'd go against anybody in the country. I mean, they've really are good students. After you finish the master's, do you, is this when you go to Florida? So when I finished my master's again, trying to find a job in the whole Boston East coast of Massachusetts, um, I, uh, married my first wife and, we moved to, I remember us going, we were kind of like, we could go anywhere we want. So we kind of traveled around the country in the summertime and we applied for different jobs wherever. And we ended up in Arizona. So I did Arizona for two, two or three years. And then um, we was moved just to teaching Florida. high school. Yeah. Teaching high school band. And she was also a music major. So she was teaching uh, middle school, elementary music. And then after three years, we went on and we moved to Florida. We wanted to be by water. We wanted to be on the East Coast, but not deal with the snow. And uh, we had several job offers in uh, Florida, but we ended up in the Tampa Bay, Hillsborough County area. And, you know, and I stayed there, I think, you know, 14 years as a high school band director, orchestra director. Until I decided, you know, like we talked about 2009, I said, I want to teach higher ed. Um, I want to take it another level. And that's when I went to get my PhD. Is is there any particular reason that you, you didn't stay in? Was it just that you wanted to be back on the East coast? It it was. Okay. Yeah, it was. I mean, the band programs and I was at a small, small school, which was another thing. Great uh, for, you know, a beginner music ed band director was having a small school and you get to build and, you know, you learn how to teach and rather than being thrown into, you know, 200 piece band. Right. Um, so, yeah, it was we just decided to move to like Florida or North, we almost went to North Carolina. But Florida it was basically like, remember, we're young, so it's kind of like we can go anywhere we want. <laughs> and uh, Tampa was the place, you know, that that we we went to and we stayed there quite a while. When you were in Tampa, where were you at multiple schools or did you stay at one district the whole time or one place? Yeah, one district. So um, Hillsborough County is like the eighth largest school district in the country. Oh, okay. So I think now um, I still have, you know, good old uh, friends, colleagues from back in the day that I keep in touch with, at least through Facebook. 
And uh, there's something like 29 high schools in that district. Hmm. Wow. So multiply that times two or three, and that's the middle schools and et cetera, et cetera. So it was a very large school district. So I taught at one school for about, I think, five or six years. And it was um, what I would consider sort of just the average uh, you know, band program, um, average sort of middle, lower middle class. And then eventually I, I went to a much better school musically, more affluent. And uh, it was great for me because as I progressed as a teacher, um, you know, so did where I taught at. And if I had gone to my last school, just uh, my last school I was at, at the beginning of my career, I, I would have failed. It's, it's a good thing about, are you ready for the gig? You know what I mean? Well, well, was it like, was it the, was it like a size thing or it's just that it was more complicated from being a percussionist, being a band director, and I don't want to speak for all of us that are that that are or were this, you know, it's like now you got to learn brass and woodwinds, right? And you got to learn a lot more, I think, than if it's just a brass player or a woodwind player becoming a, a band director. Being a percussionist, I think we're a little bit behind the eight ball as far as <clears throat> breathing techniques, uh, you know, pedagogy. And then you add on to just basically the professional development of wind ensemble lit. You know, when you're starting to play some serious literature, it requires serious score study and knowledge and, di- uh, you know, diagnosing problems that you're hearing uh, and coming up with the right solution. And I just don't think as a beginning band director, you, I would have gotten all that. Definitely a work in progress. During your undergrad and master's that you start making the contacts for your band that you still go back and and play with? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So I have a musical soulmate and I'm sure he'll listen to this podcast. So John Tamilio III. So I knew this guy in high school and it was this band and and it sort of went from a garage band when we were in high school. And the name of the group was called 3D, like 3D glasses, just 3D. And, uh, I'll try to make this story short. So they actually went from, and I wasn't part of them in high school, but um, you know, like the sax player, they were a rock band, but they had like saxophone keyboards in there as well. And they were all from the high school. And then they morphed into getting better and better. And then they hit the Boston bar scene, you know, the whole music scene. And they started really playing uh, the music scene as, you know, minors, Mm-hmm. And I ended up joining them when I was, I think, a sophomore in college. And by this time, they're really doing well. We're doing really well. We're gigging every weekend. We start opening up for big acts. And then we end up getting a demo deal with RCA Records. And at the time, RCA and all the other big major labels, and this is, again, my 22-year-old recollection, they were grabbing these uh, bands and they would either sign them to contracts and then shelve them just so that they take them off the market or sign them to these demo deals. So we started with this demo deal and it was like, all right, RCA, we're going to uh, have a producer, have the producer come in and, and, and do two songs, did the two songs. And then, and it was strange because, you know, we had a manager, but I, I you know, me being young and dumb, I wasn't always talking to the manager. So it was like, oh, we got to do two more songs, you know? Okay. So you do two more songs and now you start getting, you know, like you're watching MTV and you're thinking, geez, I might be this guy touring, you know, the world. This is great. 
And uh, anyway, we end up doing, I think, six songs or eight songs, almost an album. And then nothing happened. But in the meantime, it, it took us off the market for about a year. But in the meantime, we're opening up for the Jay Giles band. Uh, we're opening up to this other band. You'd know some of their songs. You got to think 80s now. So you might have to look up your 80s stuff if you're not familiar about Till Tuesday. Oh, yeah. Uh, we opened uh, for Bob Dylan one time. We opened up uh, for Cheap Trick. So, you know, we kind of lived the life without living the life and getting paid. But, you know, we traveled down to New York and did a lot of New York gigs, a lot of college gigs, you know. Uh, and it was the best time of, of my life at that time. Uh, but anyway, so we're still popular in the North Shore with, a, I guess, middle-aged group. And um, we still record. And, um, you know, if anybody wants to kind of check out John and I, it's just John and I now. And John plays most of the other instruments. I do drums, some vocals, you know, whatever the case may be. And we still play. As a matter of fact, uh, I'll go out there in about two months and uh, we'll probably do a couple gigs and, and do a little bit more recording. So I, I still do that for like the last 30 years. Yeah, that's awesome. So you just go to record. You don't you don't do you play gigs, too, or no? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We have, yeah. We play gigs, you know, wherever, whenever, you know, we're still Eventually, I think, you know, when we hit our late 50s into our 60s, no one will come see us anymore. But we still have our middle aged you know, friends and, and people that we've known forever that, you know, we'll play uh, something in our hometown at a bar and, you know, we'll we'll pack the place. And it's just a fun of uh, good nostalgia and good music. And we just have fun. Were you when you were in Florida, were you still playing a lot in Florida? Yeah. Yeah. So in Florida, I was playing quite a bit. So um, I did the whole band directing and it wasn't until I switched from band directing, which is like a 60, 70 hour a week job. I switched over to orchestra and sort of helped in my last school with the band. It was like, hey, I don't want to do all the responsibilities. I'll help you, but I'll, I'll just handle the orchestra and help with band. And that freed me up. So I had a a really good sort of soul rock cover group that had a steady gig every Friday night. Uh, like I said, I played at this really big mega church um, in the area that, um, you know, paid me really well and played with nothing but professional musicians. And equipment, uh, I would have been, too. Oh, man. The production yeah, like, might have been, that might have been the best produced thing you've, you've ever done. <laughs> you, you, you got it. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, everything was and it was great for me because they actually had a you know beautiful four thousand dollar Roland's electric kit. Yeah. So each time I showed up, there was nothing to set up. It was come on Wednesday. Here's what we're going to play on Sunday. And I think, I think there was two or three services on a Sunday, you know, one's contemporary and one's sort of traditional, which they actually had like an orchestra. I did that for, you know, five years and uh, it was, it was great. And I also played a lot of musicals in town. I was just one of those guys when I was getting my master's degree, uh, Fred Buddha turned me on to a lot of gigs that he couldn't take. So I would end up doing a lot of playhouse gigs, doing a seven-week stand of Oklahoma or Brigadoon or something like that. And it would be, you know, five, uh, five or six shows a week. So I would do that in Florida as well, since I had that background. So I played quite a bit. And of course, I I would sub every once in a while in an orchestra gig, you know, um, in the Florida orchestra there in Tampa. And I was also a regular player with the uh, Florida Wind Band, which is a 
uh, semi-professional wind ensemble housed out of USF, University of South Florida in Tampa. So I did quite a bit of playing, yeah. Was there a moment or an idea that you said you you decide you want to go and do this at higher ed? Was there just a point where, where you burned out? Were you like, I need to know the next step? And if you hadn't gone for the doctorate, would you still be a, in high school directing or would you have just left? I think I'd still be teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't have left. For me, I remember that when I remember the day I decided I was going to sort of give up the hope and dream. And it was like my last year of my master's degree, I gave up the hope and dream of being a performer, like going to get a symphony gig, which is obviously, as you know, is extremely hard to get a full time. This is your job. And I remember I was stuck in traffic on the Tobin Bridge going into Boston. I was playing with the New York Philharmonic, which at that time, um, not sure if they, if they still are this, but it was more of a contemporary 20th century avant-garde orchestra. The gig didn't pay a whole lot. And it was in the middle of the summer. It was hot. I was irritated. And I've never late for anything in my life. And I was going to be late just because the Tobin Bridge was completely blocked. And I had left hours early, you know what I mean? And I was so stressed about it. I was like, you know what? I just don't want to, I think maybe I'm going to focus back on teaching, which was my original goal. So that's kind of how I decided I won't, I'll give up on the full-time performing thing, which as you know, that's just hard in itself. So I think that was a good decision because there wasn't that many performing opportunities, even in Boston, because I mean, all the gigs I got were all either people that I played with or through my professors that said, yeah, this guy will handle it. Other than that, it's, it's so hard. It was so hard anyway. So yeah, I just decided um, as I got older, I wanted to teach music ed, teach students how to be choir directors, band directors, elementary music teachers. And uh, the pay was going to be better, which it is. And the schedule would be better. So uh, for me, I just figured I would take that last 20 years of my career and try it at the higher ed route. And I'm glad I did. It's, it's, it's wonderful. To backtrack a sec. So I was kind of more asking about the decision to, to, not, to not do the high school portion of it anymore. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like I said, it just got to the point where you become complacent, right? So if you've got a really good program, that's really a problem. And while I had a good program at my last school, I'm talking to all these other directors and all their programs that are are fantastic. And complacency is a big problem. You know, um, once you fight hard to build a program and, you know, it's going to be as good as it can get, now you've got to maintain it. Yeah. And, it, it just becomes hard and harder as you get older. And as your children get older, life responsibilities change, priorities change. So for me, it was more of those type of realizations for me to go, you know, and it was not a good time for me to go back and get my PhD. I mean, I could not just take out student loans and not work. Uh, you know, like I said, I was lucky enough and I wouldn't have done it if USF wasn't so great. And, you know, I'll give a shout out. I'm sure he'll listen. You know, he's now the uh, director of bands there at USF, uh, Matt McCutcheon. He was the one, he was associate director and he was new. 
And he had hired me as, hey, you're going to come here as a student. I'll hire you as assistant director of bands, teach these classes, and we'll pay you. And you get to get your PhD. So it's like, sign me up. Yeah. Sign me up. That's a hope too, right? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I think I remember getting the benefits. um, I, I still had to get a second job. And what, strangely enough, I forget the name of the company, but it's a company based out of New York actually. And they service all of the musical needs to parochial schools. So while I I think it was one or two years when I was getting my PhD, I was also running around at like seven different Catholic schools doing little, you know, teaching them some music. And uh, so I was a busy guy. I was a busy guy. And I had small kids too. So it wasn't, it wasn't easy. Right. Yeah. (laughs) You were able to finish complete, like you finished it completely before you took the the job in Oklahoma. I did, yeah, and that was kind of the you know the deal um, that I had to make with my family was you know I'm not going to stretch this out, and I really literally killed myself getting this done in three years, and because uh, you know for the PhD side you got two years of coursework, a lot of statistical analysis, lots and lots of those courses. And then your third year is basically your dissertation year. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people will get to that dissertation, right? Be ABD, and then they just stop. And I just said, I'm going to go through this. I'll commit to this. I committed to the family. And uh, I just, something I just had to do. So I did it. It frequently requires that kind of like, like I am not going to be around as much as I was because I have to do this. And, yep. and I think it's good that you figured out that it's like, I have three years to do this. And I'm at three years. I'm going to be done. Like, right. and it's going to suck for probably a yeah. lot of that time. <laughs> right. And it's true, right? I mean, we all have to sacrifice to get where we want to be or to do what we want to do. And, um, you know, I just accepted that. And of course I was, I mean, I think I was 40 when I started my PhD, which for a lot of people uh, is pretty late, but um, it was just, it was also something like, if I don't do it now, it makes no sense to get a PhD later. Right. I, I at least need good 20 years in at higher ed somewhere. Uh, if anything, Pete, right, to get that pension, right? <laughs> if, if they even offer it, yes. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, so I was very aware of, you know, like, hey, this is not just something like, Oh, I'll try this. It was something I was really going to have to dedicate. I knew I would, this is what I would do. So um, I was able to do it and I was mature enough, obviously at age 40 to get it done. Anyway, it was an experience. It was the worst three years of my life. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and, and, and it kind of cost me my first marriage, not that, not to be too personal, but you know, my first wife and I, as soon as I uh, came to um, Oklahoma, you know, um, you know, we had, we had separated when I, when I came to Oklahoma and it, that was also the best thing in the world, uh, because I, I met my, my, my beautiful bride that I've been married to for almost seven years. And it's just been, you know, uh, I'm blessed, no complaints. I don't want to say I'm glad you said that, but it's interesting. I think I had a number of friends whose, whose marriages did not work out during their doctorates for, for the reason, I mean, for the fact that it has to be an all the way in situation frequently. 
And I, I will kind of state for like on my end, my wife and I, my wife is also a college professor, but we did our doctorates in completely separate state. We were not married. We were, we were, we were dating, but we did our doctorates in separate states. And I think that's part of the reason it worked <laughs> because, <laughs> because we were not, we were, that's all we were doing at our programs was, was trying to get done. You know, and everybody has to be happy in a marriage. I mean, we're talking about sort of health and wellness, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's and that's part of that. And um, you know, I I I don't want to talk too much more about you know my first marriage, but I was almost you know I was married about twenty years, and and um, you know a lot of ups and downs, and and I think it was just sort of a it was going to happen anyway. But I'm sure the fact, like you said, me not being around, and not only going back to school, but I had like all these different jobs I had to do plus play to bring in the same income that I was earning as a full-time teacher um, certainly didn't help, but it all worked out for the best. And that's kind of the main thing is everything usually ends up working out the way it needs to in the end. We hope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it usually does. I think. Yeah. Gotcha. I'll be the optimist. Yeah, no, only, yeah, yeah. only be, I mean, only because it worked out for me, you know, I mean, so when I actually got to Oklahoma, my my big thing was, you know, I wanted and I still would like to teach graduate students, either graduate percussion students or music education, dealing with master's thesis or doctoral dissertations. Right. Because that's what I trained for in my Ph.D. You know, I've been here. I was only going to be here about two or three years and move on like a lot of people do at regional universities. But, um, you know, I met my, my wife and we've carved out a beautiful life. Now I've fallen in love with the school I'm at. Um, I love my schedule. I love what I do. So that's it. I've got maybe 12 more years till I'm 65 and it's all about helping students making music and trying to, be the positive influence on these college students, whether it be percussion, because I have performance majors, I have jazz study majors, and not just music ed majors. Last question on the PhD portion is, what was your doctoral research? Let me get my book. I'll have to <laughs> do, you need, do you need help? Is it, is it yeah, like yeah, four volumes of happiness? So, so here goes. So it was a qualitative um dissertation. So here's the whole title. You ready? So it's yeah, right. the impact, the impact of arranging music for the large ensemble on the teacher, a phenomenological exploration. So it's, it's, you know, dealing with the, uh, the um, research side of uh, uh, phenomenology. And uh, it was basically uh, in a nutshell, I had uh, several, you know, old colleagues of mine, that have never arranged music before. And my big thing was trying to go beyond sort of the band director, think of a band director, band director identity of, of just being a conductor. It was what happens if they actually create music and then conduct it. So I had them, uh, you know, compose or arrange pieces specifically for their, for their group. And of course, a year of just observing research, you know, figuring out what's going on and whether that's a good thing for our profession. And it ended up being um, a pretty good thing. They learned a lot more by writing music for instruments rather than just teaching. When they had to write for it, they looked at the instruments in a whole different way. It's a kind of a great little project. And, and, and I didn't continue that, you know, I mean, 
part of my, my deal at my university, of course, I have to publish. So I have to publish academic journal stuff. Um, but also they enjoy me writing for uh, PAS. So, you know, I've, I've written some articles for PAS, whether it be the Rhythm Scene blog or whether it be for uh, Percussive Notes. And I enjoy that. It's just kind of like if I feel I have something important that I research and it doesn't have to be academic, like it could be like musculoskeletal disorders Mm -hmm. and write an article about it, make sure it's correct. And it ends up helping people out. So that's kind of where my research agenda is gone. All right. I have a final segment called random ask questions. Yep. All right. First question. What's an issue in, we'll focus on the percussion side. Although if you want to take it in the music ed direction too, you can, but an issue in percussion, either education performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts. I don't know. It keeps changing every four years, right? Uh, Let's see. So something that gets under my skin in performance, I get a lot of students. So where I teach at, like I said, I could have some of the best high school music programs like Broken Arrow, Owasso Union. But then I also get students from the very rural areas. And in Oklahoma, unfortunately, um, they can come here while they've got some talent. It's It hasn't been nurtured yet. Yes. So I get a lot of students that just come in with horrific technique or kind of like they have the potential to read really well, but they feel like everything needs to be done by the ear. Mm. And there's a balance of, yeah, you got to have feel and you've got to, you know, be part of that groove. You also have to be able to read charts when it's needed. And my big thing with those type of students, you know, and, and um, we have kind of a Dr. Lindroth quotes. And one of the quotes is if you guess you're going to fail in life (laughs) and particularly in music, you know, if, if you're guessing, it's like you're guessing, you don't know the, you're guessing. And the chances are of you getting it right are pretty slim, especially in music. So that's one thing that drives me nuts with my students here. Sometimes now I'm a big lover of the marching percussion, but as uh, I get older, I do notice I've, I've had students that have played with uh, recently with Carolina crown um, also uh, Genesis and, uh, and, and the blue stars. And I do get a little concerned with, some of the technique that's so specific that it's not very applicable. It's almost back to when I said about Fred, when he's talking about get rid of that rat tat tat stuff of, you know, their technique is so ingrained in them that that it's not going to work when they apply it to another instrument or another genre of music. Yeah. And it kind of makes it sound like, Oh, you're picking on March and percussion. No, there's some of the finest, performances we see in that in that area and i'm not knocking that at all but i do see some of them you know developing specific techniques and they just kind of feel that's the only way to play and it's like i've seen people play percussion that have no arms they play with their feet i'm pretty sure they don't teach that but they get the job done right so it's you know so that kind of irritates me probably in the last two years (laughs) Probably shouldn't say that, Pete, because, you know, a lot of people be like, oh, man, you're not going to march percussion. But that's uh, I, I see that kind of getting in the way. A lot of choreography with four mallets I'm seeing. Uh, now, I love Winogard, but it's like 
now the choreography with, uh, you know, the movements, everything when they play marimba, for example, they're almost dancing and, you know, they're moving. I know the listeners can't see, but everything's like a dance and it's all part of the visual elements. And it's like, you still have to have the best posture to get the best sound out of, out of that instrument. Right. So I get a little worried that these young people that play really well might not be, they might think that's really the way to do it all the time. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. Anyway, that's not a quick answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's not required to be a quick answer. Um, yeah. If it is, it is. Because you mentioned this, I'm getting, getting away from the percussion side, but has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Yeah, I think when I taught high school band, of course, you know, and, and high school band so different than high school orchestra. We won't get into that, but completely different realm, right? Yeah. Band's just different, just like choir's different. But band is its own special family. Yeah, you know, you'll have those days where they'll come and dressed as you. And there was one time early on, you know, you coming from uh, Long Island, you must remember this, like, late 80s, early 90s. You know, you had, like, you even had, like, gold bracelets, right? You had yeah. the gold chain, the bracelets. So I remember going out to Arizona and I, I, I had some gold yeah. and the students, you know, would come to school and, you know, kind of make fun of me with all this fake gold all over them and stuff like that. So, you know, <laughs> I'm sure my students do a good impression of me. They just won't do it in front of me. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. Well, we br- since we bring up um, Long Island and Boston, do you have a sports fandom? So I am a huge hockey fan and actually believe it or not so i, I mentioned uh one of my sons i have two sons andrew and matthew andrew's the oldest he's 26 and him and i are huge hockey fans and believe it or not we actually have a hockey podcast that we do every week nice yeah yeah check it out lindroth hockey podcast and uh, we have on um current players old players anything from old nhl uh hall of famers even to you know, East Coast, uh, you know, double A hockey. And we do that. So we're, I'm a big hockey guy. Um, of course, I love the Patriots and all that and the Red Sox, but I'm not really into the whole baseball, football. It's all hockey for me. Interesting. Well, but, I mean, that makes sense for that, for the area. It's just been, it's been weird. Cause you, it's like the Bruins have been like, you got your championship in yeah. the last decade yeah. Or might be just beyond that at this point. But it's like they were like the one team that hadn't hadn't gotten there yet. <laughs> you know, you had Bork, who was there forever. He doesn't get his title with them. And, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was great in 2011. And it's been a heartache uh, the rest of the decade because they went, I think, twice and, and didn't make it. So, yeah, we're, we're really diehard hockey fans. Um, we have a East Coast team here, uh, Tulsa Oilers. And, uh, you know, and they're good. It's good hockey. It's good hockey. A lot of them will make it to the NHL, uh, but not everybody. And uh, we just love hockey. We like yesterday we had on one of the assistant coaches to the Los Angeles Kings on our podcast. Nice. So we get to sort of live the fan dream of of meeting these players and coaches and GMs. And it's really the greatest sport. Growing up, though, it was all Red Sox. You know, yeah. of course, the Red Sox, Yankees, you know, and that you, you know, you can't, you, that's the rivalry, right? Yeah. And then, of course, I missed it being a Patriots fan because I had moved away when the Patriots became a dynasty. And, uh, you know, I had to live through, uh, you know, everybody hating the Patriots for 20 years. Mm-hmm. But living in Florida, it's, it's strange, Pete, because um, 
I played hockey, believe it or not, on a Sunday night beer league for like 10 years. And it was all New York, Boston and Minnesota and Michigan guys. Right. Of course it is. This is Florida. (laughs) So so Florida is right. Florida doesn't have, you know, native people there. It's all implants and they're all from the Northeast. So if you go to a um, Tampa Rays game, maybe not now since they've gotten really good, but it would turn into mini Yankee stadium. There's more New York fans here, new, new, more Boston fans than Tampa fans. Same thing with hockey. Yeah. And luckily for them, they're changed and they should, I mean, they're a great sports town now, but yeah, it was rough. And, you know, they used to have bumper stickers down in, in Florida from the people that didn't come from the Northeast. And they would say, uh, I don't, you know, I don't give a crap. Uh, how you did it, how you do it up north. They used to have bumper stickers because, you know, you go down there and it's, you know, it's like, oh, Long Island, you know, you actually go through the drive through at, at Wendy's, you know, you don't go through the drive through and sit there. It's like it's an actual drive through. What do you mean you don't have Dunkin' Donuts down here? What is this? <laughs> you know, give me a go to Dunkin' Donuts and, you know, I, I just give me a regular. It's like a regular what? Right. Like, what? what do you mean? Well, what, you know, yeah. So, uh, but I, I get to go to Boston maybe once or twice a year and I get to live that life again. <laughs> yeah, that's no, that's, that's good. Um, I was going to, I was wondering because you're in, I would not, not call Oklahoma a hotbed, but at least you have, you have some, like you have a minor league team at least that, that you can get your, get your in-person aggression out, I guess at. Yeah. And it is. And, you know, because of the podcast, we get to know the players we've had on some of the players and uh, it's, it, it's, it's been great. And my oldest, Andrew, I keep mentioning that I do the podcast with, you know, he graduated from my university I teach at. Yeah. So he's, you know, he's here, you know, he's got a, got a job. He actually owns a, a a medical marijuana dispensary. Hmm. And so he's running that and he still plays, uh, you know, he's got a, uh, summer gig that he's the house drummer for this playhouse group. And, and it's just, you know, you wouldn't think Oklahoma, like why everybody, if I say, Oklahoma, first I go, where are you from? And I say, originally Boston. And then the next question is, what are you doing in Oklahoma? Yeah. And of course my answer now with the beautiful bride that I have is, well, a job brought me to Oklahoma, but my wife kept me here. Meaning, you know, I mean, my life is here yeah. and, yeah. um, You know, like I said, there are some performance opportunities, but I've become more of a performance snob when I hit 50. And I've turned down a lot of gigs that, um, you know, I guess I'm I guess I'm old and crabby, Pete. You know, I'm just like, I don't want to be $150 to play. No, I'll I'll sit at home. (laughs) You know, and I used to never do that. I would never pass up a gig. But I guess now I'm just older and you know, I'm financially it's okay to not take that gig. And if I'm not gonna get anything musical out of it. I just don't take it. It's not, and that's probably, thing. probably the worst thing I could say on a percussion podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, but I, I, I do still play, but it's, it's, um, you know, I'll play with, you know, some, some heavies, you know, like uh, playing either drum set or even conducting. Like uh, uh, we have a wonderful jazz guy here, Clark Gibson. And this guy's just a monster player, player. And, um, you know, he'll he'll do these gigs and, you know, the gigs, you know, it's it's a thousand dollars a man. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And it's playing. It's not playing at a local bar. It's playing like at the Civic Center. And so I, I'll play those gigs when when asked. And uh, but, uh, 
yeah, I'm not doing much in the way of, you know, smaller gigs anymore. I'll leave that to my students. Usually I refer my students. Absolutely. No, it's a good idea. All right. A couple other questions. Uh, yep. Great movie or and a terrible movie. My greatest movies, I'd say, is Saving Private Ryan or um, um, Schindler's List. And and I think it's the combination of of not only Spielberg and his genius, but it's John Williams being able to get the job done. I mean, again, what what a great composer and person he is. And by the way, um, also the favorite conductor for uh, my old conductors, they love John Williams. Mm -hmm. Worst movie? that I don't like or, or, or like a bad movie that I like, which one? No, a, a movie you didn't like. Pee Wee Herman's big adventure. <laughs> How's that? I'll go old school on you. Nice. Interesting. Okay. All right. All right. Gotcha. What is your biggest kitchen mess up? Anytime I have to saute or fry something. So due to our schedules, my wife and I, we are actually a team. So I am actually a pretty decent cook. And she's taught me that. Uh, but anytime that I have to saute or fry anything, it's like I always get too much oil or I don't cover it. And it's just grease everywhere. And it goes down on the cupboards and I get yelled at. And then I get it's it's a it's a constant. I got to go back and clean up after myself. So I'd say it's that. Do, do you but have- I'm pretty good in the kitchen, Pete. I'm pretty good in the kitchen. You'd be impressed. But but you just you just need to like the, the hazmat suit basically to to not get it not burn your skin essentially. Yeah, my wife's trying to teach me it's it's better to go um, low temperature in a long time rather than trying to go high temperature and you know splatter everything. Right. So I'm I'm a work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> All right, where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Believe it or not, I'd like to go to like. Russia, obviously not at the moment with everything going on with Ukraine, but um, I've talked to a lot of musicians, met a lot of Russian musicians, uh, some Russian percussionists as well. And uh, and I hear St. Petersburg is just a a wonderful city to travel to. Now, I would have said Europe, but I just went to UK, France, Switzerland and Germany in December. Nice. So I probably would have said anywhere in Europe, but I just got back from Europe. But I think that would be a cool place to go is like St. Petersburg, Russia. Just the musicians say it's, it's a musician's dream with the architecture and the opera houses and the ballets there. So I guess I'd say that. Nice. All right. What is a favorite book? I'm a huge Bond fan, which is crazy. I'll give a shout out to the uh, marching band director at University of Miami down there in Florida, uh, Jay Reese. Um, I knew him when he was a uh, director at uh, University of Arizona when I was in Arizona. And I thought I was the biggest James Bond fan there is. Not just the movies, I'm talking all the books. Yeah. So from Ian Fleming to John Gardner to, you know, all the authors that have taken on the Bond. So any Bond book has is, is just been great for me. And Jay, actually, I thought I was the expert on Bond, but Jay Reese down there, if you ever run into Jay Reese, University of uh, Miami, Talk to him about Bond. The guy is a genius. But I think a book that impacted me is that, oh, man, I forget. It's the Jewish writer about the concentration camps. It's like. Uh, um, oh, man. Man's, man's, oh, I mean. Victor that Frankl. Book, yes. Yeah, I've read it. And, and, yeah. And his his philosophy of kind of 
um, you know, his therapy that he's, that he got out of that legal therapy or whatever it is. Anyway. Yeah. That book really moved me quite a bit. Uh, I recommend that for everybody to learn about a human being. So, okay. Two questions on the bond part. One sure. is what makes a good bond book. I've, I've seen the movies too, but I'm curious, like what, what do you, what, what makes a good bond book? So it, it's Ian Fleming. You'd have to read it. Remember, Fleming wrote these things like in the 50s and early 60s. Yeah. And he would really go into like sort of like the culture of Bond. Like if he goes into a French restaurant, what, what he orders and why. And, you know, you go into a casino and you learn about, you know, Baccarat or whatever game. So he was sort of detailed into this sort of uh, civil servant, James Bond, who gets to go out on assignments and kind of gets to spend a lot of money and act rich and beat up bad guys. Um, of course, the formula is always the formula, you know, that doesn't change, but it's really the places that Bond goes is usually a place that all of the writers will go. It's kind of just that world of James Bond you learned about. That's what makes it so special. My favorite Bond book, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Also my favorite Bond movie, that's the one where, yeah, that's the one where you have George Lazenby as Bond. Yeah. 1969, the book came out, I think, in like 62, 63. And in it, James Bond gets married. Right. And uh, and his wife dies at the end. Sorry, I just spoiled it for anybody that didn't. <laughs> uh, you know, but, you know, she has to die, right? But it's sort of like James Bond finally falls in love and gets married, but she dies. Have you Now, have you seen George Lazenby's uh, documentary? No, uh, and that's on my, to, my. It's, it's hilarious. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those where, like, he's sitting, he's just sitting down and telling a story, and you can't, you have no idea of it, how, like, how much of what he's saying is true. But, but it's incredibly entertaining. I, I highly recommend it. And, and becoming Bond—that's what it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I want to see it, and and I know quite about his history, but it's like I'm sure most of it's true. Yeah, he was like. Uh, I mean, he was kind of an idiot to, to give up the Bond role because right. he thought Bond was not going to be popular with the, you know, the late 60s hippies. It was like, do you want to get rid of that Bond stuff? And, you know, boy, did he make a big mistake. I think they gave him a three picture deal. And he turned it down. He just yeah. turned it down. But he's great in that. He's not a great actor, but he was great for that movie in that role. And, of course, uh, the wo woman that plays... Um, uh, his his wife in that movie is uh, the one that was in the Avengers series, uh, Diana Rigg. Yeah. And she just carries that. But anyway, not to get off the topic of Bond, but uh, yeah. I used to be a huge, huge Bond fan. Not so much more. I didn't like the last one. I don't really, I'm not a big Daniel Craig fan, but I mean, he did a good job, but I don't know, whatever. <laughs> I'm old and crabby, Pete, now. It's like a, I'm that old person that, that I used to go, oh, they're just old. They, never mind them. I'm that person now. Nah, I got you. <laughs> well, he, you know, I think, I, I, I generally, I think I liked his movies. I feel like he, his first movie, the Casino Royale, was great. And then right. I, think, I think everything kind of was just not as good as that. He just, he just didn't seem to want to do it. That's the whole thing. Right. And it's like, if you don't want to take a character that's beloved by many people, then just step away. Let someone else do it. And he, yeah, you know, yeah. he kind of did it for the money and blah, 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 whatever. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to dog the guy. I mean, if I met him, I'm sure I'd be like, Oh, you were the greatest bond. <laughs> right. Of course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, yeah. But uh, yeah, James Bond, there you go.
There you go. All right. A couple more funniest, yep. strangest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you. Okay. So this is an audition story. Okay. Now I tell this audition story. So in, in my studio, um, I'll still do at least the first like four or five etudes out of the Vic Firth timpani book. Every time we do etude number one, um, I'll tell this story once they polish it and it's done. So remember, I was I was uh, in my senior year of high school. I auditioned to get into the New England Conservatory of Music. And I thought it was a good idea because I was already there my senior year in high school. Like I said, I was in the prep division. I took an extra private lesson with um, I forget his name, uh, a good solid percussionist, but no, um, I can't say like a very well-known name and I can't remember his name. It's been so long, but I did a private lesson with him and it was in Vic first studio at New England conservatory. So anyway, I thought it was a, it was a great thing. I know the school. So I auditioned and as I opened the door, it's uh, Frank Epstein, um, what Tom, Tom Gager guy. Well, how do you say his last name? Gager? I think it's Gager. Yeah. And of course, Vic. And as I open the door, I hear them talking. So it's really the percussion section of the Boston Symphony Orchestra sitting there. And uh, and they basically use some cuss words and they're just like, I can't, you know, effing believe that they flew us out because they were on tour like in L.A. at that point or something. I can't believe they effing flew us back for these GD auditions. It's like, whoa. And I forget who said it. It wasn't Vic. It was one of the others. And, and it's like, oh, hi, you know, I'm James Lindroth. You know, I'm, you know, nice to meet you. Like that was, so I'm already like, you got to be kidding me. So I go in there and, and I wasn't thinking, and I, and I did the mallet piece and I didn't do very well on that. Nerves got the best of me. Snare piece went fine. I go to do the timpani piece and Vic gets up from his chair and he walks over behind me and the way is set up, it would be better if, if, if the, li- the listeners could see this, but basically the timpani were almost up against this wall and he had a piano, mm-hmm. upright piano. So there's only like three to four feet of room between the 23 inch timpani and his piano. Right. Mm-hmm. So I go to play this piece and he walks up behind me and he's almost standing over my shoulder, basically. And what am I playing? Etude number one his piece. Mm-hmm. So I proceed to then start hack my way through his etude number one. He stops me and he says that, you know, it's, it's out of tune. Well, senior in high school, I couldn't match pitch. So he then bangs like the low G for the 32 inch timpani, right? He, he bangs down a low G. And he's like, here, I'll, I'll give you the first pitch. There's no way I'm going to hit any pitch, but a G. Then he says, well, just sing it all, you know, and it's like, I'm duh, duh. I mean, right. If you guess you fail at rife, right, Pete? So uh, there's no way. So he just basically goes and he puts his hand on my shoulder, he pats and he goes, just go ahead and play. So I play through the piece. I'm, I'm sure it's terrible. I thought it was okay, but I'm so nervous. Now he's got his $50,000 hand copper timpani in his office, right? And this is the one with the, you know, the, I call it the T lugs, the old mm-hmm. T lugs. I get done and it's like, ta-da, I'm done. And he's not saying anything, he's standing there. And I'm going, either he's mystified that this is the greatest musical performance he's ever heard in his life, or 
he can't believe that what he just heard was so bad. So I didn't know what to do. It was the end of the audition. He's just kind of standing there like, and I'm like, okay. So I'm trying to get around him. So I go in front of him because he was backed up against a piano, if you follow me. And lo and behold, believe it or not, my fly was down maybe halfway. And the T-lug got stuck in my fly. So as I'm trying to get out and not touch him, right? You don't, you don't want to touch him. I'm now carrying that 23-inch timpani with me. And of course, by the time I realize it, I'm like going back and forth trying to get this out and I'm slamming the 23-inch into the next timpani, his $50,000 copper timpani. Yeah. And it turned into this, I'm sure it was three seconds, but it seemed like it was like a longest 10 seconds of my life of Frank Epstein and Tom going, whoa, 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 whoa. And Vic going, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And me going, ah, I don't know what's going. Right. So he ends up going, stop, stop, stop. And, and everybody's now yelling at me, right? They're yelling at me, Pete. So finally, I, I'm like, every time I turn around to be like, well, I, I, you know, I just, I'm banging more timpani. So Vic, grabs me, puts two hands around and gives you this big bear hug. And he whispers in my ear, it's stuck in your fly. The lug's stuck in your fly. And he's like, look down, move your fly. And I'm like, okay, I got it. He's like, you got it? I'm like, yeah. And he says, okay. And he lets me go. And then I like zip up my fly and I walk humbly out of the room. And I did not get accepted in the New England Conservatory of Music. Now, so I tell my students, if your audition, no matter what you do, if, if, it, if it's not that bad, then you had a good audition. So fast forward to PASIC, like 1997 or something. It was a year it was in Phoenix. I don't know if you went there. It was mm -mm, sometime in the 90s, it was in Phoenix. So, of course, um, Neil Grover's a... Friend, mentor, um, you know, was my teacher friend and men, uh, mentor for a long time. Him and I are real close. So I go to see him at his booth and he never heard that story ever. So somehow I told that story and he's laughing and he literally grabs me by the hand, something Neil would never do. And he goes, come with me. And we march. He marches me over to Vic first, you know, the Vic first place. And says, Vic, of course, he was a, you know, they know each other. They play with each other. And he says, you remember this guy? And now Vic's looking at me going, oh, my God, I've had hundreds of students. I don't. And he's trying to like, uh, uh, uh. And finally, he goes, go ahead and tell him. And I said, I'm the guy that got the fly stuck in your timpani. And that's all I needed to say. And he starts laughing. He goes, I remember you. I'll never forget you. And I'm just like. That's great, but I wish you would remember me for something else. And Neil thought that was the greatest thing. And anytime I saw Vic, I would just say, you know, hey, Vic, I'm the fly guy, remember? And, you know, and he would just laugh and come over and, you know, give me a handshake my hand. Pretty sad story, huh, Pete? That's a great story. Yeah. So that, <laughs> that, was, my, that was my audition story. And, of course, I told you, then, then I said, you know, I'll, I'll go to Berkeley. So I did, you know, it's like, maybe I'll do a drum set. I, it was such a horrible experience, but uh, yeah, that was my, my one time of really messing with Vic's timpani in his studio. So 
I'd like I'd like to have a better story about Vic, but I don't. But he, I mean, he was a great guy. Yeah. No, that's that's amazing. That was a that was a wonderful story. Yeah. All right, one last question. Yep. One piece of art. What one piece of art could be music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual, when anything has impacted you the most recently? My mom passed away a long time ago. My dad is 90, going to be 91. And it's got to a point where he he's living with us for the past year. Mm, And I I said earlier, he's an artist. And when I say he's an artist, I mean, he's top notch artist. He still sells at age 90. He sells he does commissions and stuff like that. So my dad is, is an inspiration as far as creativity in the arts, where I can't draw a stick figure. He creates every week masterpieces. And I don't know if you're on Facebook, but if you are, you know, let, let's be friends. And, and I post like every week, like a painting he does. And I mean, it's like quality stuff. And it's amazing that this 90 year old man who's He's aging and it's, you know, his memory and, you know, there's a lot of things that he's, he's, that is going wrong with him, but he's still hanging in there. And boy, he, he's doing his best work, Pete, now at age 90, his best work. So that's sort of an inspiration for me. And um, I can't move it, but I have like one, two, three, four, five, I got six of his paintings in my office. You can't see him. I'd have to move the whole computer, but yeah, he's, he's an inspiration for me uh, as far as art's concerned. He gets it. You know what I mean? He gets it. Such a pleasure getting to chat with James. Again, he did a great job at PASIC in his presentation, and he was great on this show here, particularly that audition story with Vic Firth. That was insane. I look forward to keeping up with him with all of his exploits going forward and best of luck to him and his podcast in the future. This week's rave is the 1979 film, The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh, starring Julius, Dr. J. Irving, Stocker Channing, Jonathan Winters, and a whole lot of NBA players of the time and directed by Gilbert Moses. Is this a good movie? Probably not. Did I enjoy rewatching it? Absolutely. The plot of the film is this. NBA legend Julius Irving stars as Moses Guthrie, a high-priced star of the local pro basketball team in Pittsburgh, which, to be noted, there is no pro basketball team in Pittsburgh right now. The team is in a slump, and all of the players except Guthrie quit the team. Then the ball boy for the team matches up with an astrologer, played by Stocker Channing, who helps set the course for the future by having a team entirely made up of players under the astrological sign of Pisces. The team is renamed eventually the Pittsburgh Pisces. They turn it around and become the biggest and best team in the league and make it to the finals. It's a pretty standard sports plot. Is the acting Oscar worthy? (laughs) No. Did I care? Definitely not. It's worth noting that I watched this movie a lot when I was growing up. It appeared on one of our local channels, and my siblings recorded it off of there onto a VHS tape, and we watched it a lot. But this was the first time I had rewatched this film as an adult. I even sent the picture of the screenshot of the film to my siblings, who also watched the movie a lot growing up. 
So what's good about the movie? Well, a few things. One, the music. It's the fish that saved Pittsburgh. Whoa, whoa. Hey, do you, do you not know that? That is the theme song, or at least one of the lines from the theme song. It is a tremendous and very much underrated song from the era in the very funk soul 70s vibe. And once it's in your head, it's there and you're going to love it. And the rest of the music in it is very specific to the era, but also still very good. Two, the basketball action. This is always a challenge for any sports movie, getting the sports action to look like the real thing. Now for this, because there are so many NBA players in the basketball scenes, and there are a lot of basketball scenes, it all looks a lot like it used to look. Speaking of which, three, while Dr. J is not a good actor, and, and he's definitely not, he was one of the all-time great basketball players. And this movie was filmed around or just after his peak as a player, which was a pretty spectacular period. There's a lot of terrible replays of his dunks, sometimes many replays of the same shot over and over for no reason. And there's one scene where he's dunking a lot in a suit on a playground. I guess he's getting his basketball mojo back. I mean, who knows? But seeing him in his prime is pretty good. And lastly, it does the thing that sports movies are supposed to do, which is get you on the team's side, get you excited when they start putting it all together. It's very rah-rah, very motivational, all that stuff. That is a lot of fun. So if you want to have a good time with great music, good basketball footage, and really just kind of zone out on the plot and the acting, well, this is your movie. Make it the fish that saved Pittsburgh streaming on various locations. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com, and I'll catch you next time. Until then. <laughs>